in the sermon series, I've claimed that these teachings of Jesus from Luke 15 through 18, we cheated a little, started in Luke 14, are one of the things they are is regularly surprising. If I'm honest with myself, I, uh, I come into church sometimes, alright? Just like you, you know, um, I never used to preach every week until I came to this church. It was more sporadic or semi-regular. And when I come to church on Sunday morning and I read scripture, I'm sometimes not surprised. Or I'm just, I'm kind of halfway listening, you know. I listen along with the preacher, I read along with him, but I'm halfway listening. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, Jesus... Probably something about temptations, maybe something about forgiveness, you know, uh, something about faith, right? Which, in fact, is actually the topic this morning. <laughs> but, in order to, to sort of somehow, you know, combat getting accustomed, you know, to glossing over what's being read in God's Word, I did a little exercise this week, all right? Just a personal exercise. Uh, I imagine the Father, God the Father, giving me the same topic that he gave Jesus to talk about. Alright? Uh, and definitely, you know, believe me, there were disastrous results with that. But, it, I thought it would be a fun exercise to compare my advice with Jesus' advice. I wanted to try this, and I want to encourage you to try it sometime, and see if the words of Jesus aren't further impressed upon you as being radically surprising. Radically stand out based on the advice you give compared to his. So I want, I want to share with you some of the, the thoughts I wrote down. So for instance, um, we looked, started in Luke 14, 25-35. The topic for that day was, or the sermon title was, I thought Jesus wanted me to just take a leap of faith. The topic at hand was, what's the cost of following Jesus? Alright, and here's what, I, here's what I wrote down. If, if you were the disciples and there's the crowd around Jesus, here's what I would have, would have said. What's the cost of following Jesus? Well, first of all, I want to encourage you to sit down and make a list of priorities in your life. Alright, so grab a sheet of paper. Maybe it's a scrap paper. Maybe it's a notepad. Maybe it's your journal. Write down the priorities in your life. Then you're going to organize them into a pie chart. Okay, maybe similar to the one you see up here. I'm going to organize them into a pie chart. What are you going to give to Jesus? Right? What are you going to give to Friends, family, and just for the OCD people out there, I put fighting germs, just for fun. I had to think of a fourth one, that's what you got. <clears throat> Alright, so those four things. Then I would encourage you to uh, commit to this. Alright, you made your list of priorities. Here's what you got to eliminate to follow Jesus. Here's what you need to give to Jesus. Can you commit to this in your life? That's what I would say. Now, Jesus... Jesus, who, where, where's your PR man, Jesus? Jesus instead, you have to so treasure me that you'd be willing to give up all that you own, die to all your other desires in life, and even hate your friends and family compared to the strength of your love for me. That's what Jesus said, all right? Surprising, all right? That's not what, you know, it's not what I would probably get out and, you know, say to people on television or in an interview or something like that. That was one thing. Okay, the next, I'll give you one more section here. The next little bit of scripture was Luke chapter 15, 1 through 10. And this topic was about just how lost are we as human beings. Just how lost are we as human beings. So, I imagine God giving me this topic to talk about. Here's how I would approach it. Look, we all have problems. Right? We all have problems in life. You, me, the guy to your right, the lady to your left. 
We don't have problems. Um, let me share with you a story about what a fool I can be in my life. I see I'm being vulnerable here. I'd be vulnerable with you. You'd be like, oh man, I really appreciate him being vulnerable. And now, would you consider being vulnerable with God? Because he can help you with these problems. This is the kind of approach I would take. Jesus took this approach. You're so lost in sin, you're like an animal that just feeds itself until it falls off a cliff. <laughs> All right? Jesus' approach is a little more direct. All right, then my, I'm trying to like kind of massage the, the, you know, your feelings out of you and get it out. Jesus is, you know, you're like this animal that would just keep eating until it died. Actually worse, you're like a nickel that fell out of a person's pocket somewhere in your house and you can't help yourself at all. You're the nickel. You have to be found. You can't move. You can't yell. You just you got to be found by God. That's how helpless we are. Jesus. Regularly surprising. Don't you think? Do you agree, huh? Surprising what he teaches. And it would have been surprising to the people who listen as well. Well, you get the point. This morning we approach a teaching Jesus gives that seems fairly regular. Right? This is kind of what I'd expect. Temptation, forgiveness, and faith. Open to Luke 17, verse 1. Read verses 1 through 6. And let's see what Jesus does with this topic. Is it normal? Is it typical? Temptation, forgiveness, faith. All right, typical Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, if he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent. He comes to you, he asks for forgiveness. He says, I'm sorry, I'm going to try not to do this again. Seven times he says, repent. You must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. We earnestly ask you that you challenge us with it this morning. In your name, amen. Here's what I would say. Here's my advice on temptation. If God the Father said, look, I need you to talk about temptation, take about ten minutes, five minutes. Better make it three, because I know you, Ryan, will probably talk for ten. I'll give you three. So, what I would do is, I would, after leading off with a cute but insightful story about the temptations, the Motown musical group, the temptations, I'd do something like that. Oh yeah, the temptations. Right? And then, I would, uh, I would go with the someone's watching you, someone's always watching you approach combined with together we can make a difference. That would be my approach, alright? That's how this would go. It would be, if you call yourself a Christian, someone's always watching your life. Right? It might be a coworker, might be a child, might be your spouse, might be a neighbor, a friend, a boss. Someone's always watching your life. So be careful. 
And then I would go on to talk about what if we lived in a world where each person encountered less and less temptations to sin, to harm people, less temptations to hurt people, less temptations to take advantage of people. Together in unity, we can make a difference. That's just my sound effect, probably not the people. But what would Jesus say? Well, what does he say here? He says, basically, don't think temptations are ever going to stop while this world is still spinning. Right? They are going to come. That's pretty bleak. Jesus, temptations are sure to come. They're, they are definite. They will come your way and they'll come all the time. Then he goes on to say, but basically, if you're thinking about living a life that tempts other people to sin, I've got a better alternative. Wear a necklace. Just wear a necklace. You know, one that weighs 500 pound stone that's used to crush grain in a field and go snorkeling somewhere in the sea. It would be better if you did that than to tempt someone. Oh, gosh, Jesus, that's kind of hard. But he says it's a better alternative. Then he talks about forgiveness, how you would respond if someone sins against you. Here's what I would say if God gave me, God the Father gave me this assignment. I would say something like, well, look, before you say something you're going to regret, think about one way in which you've hurt someone. One specific way. Consider the pain you caused that person. In your heart, forgive the wrongdoer, just as you would want to be forgiven. And no one's asking you to have the same relationship with that person, you know, in the exact same way. You know, you've been hurt, it's understandable. And no one's asking you to forgive them time after time. I mean, you know, eventually you've got to kind of maybe separate yourself from that person and just say, look, you kind of hurt me all the time. That's what I would suggest. Jesus says a couple things about forgiveness or how to respond to sin. He says, first of all, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So if someone sins against you, rebuke him. To rebuke means to show a brother or sister in Christ their fault in a way that clearly expresses wrongdoing. So there's a difference here. I want to say something about rebuking. There's a difference here between criticism and rebuke, right? A rebuke comes from someone who has shown that he or she is a brother or sister in Christ versus someone who's just looking for you to be their toilet, right? Has that ever happened to anyone here, right? You know? Um, Look, um, it's got to be honest with you. And then, <laughs> spew on you. Um, second, a rebuke makes plain what is true, right? It's just simply revealing what is true in life. Versus, you know, bringing doubt and guilt on someone unnecessarily when that actually didn't happen. Interestingly enough, friends, I was rebuked this past week. I mean, flat out, straight up, rebuked. Uh, I didn't actually agree with the whole rebuke, but I know the person said it as a brother in Christ. And having stepped back, and I, I, I brought what they said before the Lord, there was some truth, and there was an opportunity in someone saying something hard to me to grow from that. I had an opportunity to grow and to be less careless with my, you know, with my words. I was kind of the the point of pain, the point of growth there for me. To be less careless with my words. This person loved me enough to speak up. It's hard, but let me suggest something. If over the last six months, no one in your life has made an effort to show you your fault, 
and I'm, let's not count spouses, by the way. <laughs> all right, that's not fair. We all know that's going to happen. Okay, and they need to do it in love as well. But let's just let's not count spouses because that's like pretty, fairly inevitable. If no, no one has made an effort to show you your fault, I would I would put deeper fellowship on the top of your prayer requests. That's the sign of a true brother and sister in Christ. Have they ever had the honesty to love you enough to show you that? Alright. Jesus also says in response to how do you respond to someone who sins against you, if he repents, forgive him. Right? Times seven. And he says, even, even says that day. Can you imagine someone sinning in the same way, which is also implied here, seven times in the same day, and then coming back to you time after time? Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm guessing it's probably not happened to any of us. Same time, the same way, seven times. Can you imagine that? Yes. Says Jesus. Right? He's really the only one who can understand this. He knows what it's like for people to come to him time and again to receive forgiveness. And he wants to show it. Anyway, this is, this is hard stuff, isn't it? Rebuke, forgive times seven. You know, sure, you can lead someone into temptation, but you're going to have a giant stone put around your neck. Right? It would be better if that would happen and, and throw into the sea if you're going to do that. Hard stuff. What's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? Jesus kind of summarizes the point. He summarizes the point in... A hard imperative. Does anybody know? Let's do a little uh, grammar test here. Uh, now, fun times. I know you're looking forward to this. Um, who knows what an imperative is? Raise your hand. Anyone know what an imperative is? Two. Three. Okay. Anyone willing to share? It's a command. Okay. So let's think of some examples. It's a command. What would be an example of an imperative? Sit. You sure you want me to sit? Because that was so authoritative. Gosh, I feel like I almost need to go over here now and see. That was pretty good. Very nice. Uh, yeah, sit, stand, stop, go. It's basically anything you would say to a small child if they were running towards the road, right? <laughs> Whatever you would say there is an imperative, all right? Whenever you read the Bible, especially anything after the Gospels, but in the Gospels also. And you're wondering, what's this guy trying to say? And like in a nutshell, what's his main point? It's kind of a side note here. Look for an imperative. Because 90% of the time, that's, that's the main point. Anyway, Jesus gives an imperative here, verse 3. He gives us this command that summarizes his entire message to us. And the command is, Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. You know, the disciples have been with him for a long time. At this point. He's heading towards Jerusalem. We're going to find that out soon. One of the, one of the passages coming up here. But he's on his way to Jerusalem. Towards his death. Wake up. Uh, my dad was always a big fan. He had this phrase he always liked to say, which was, watch yourself, big boy. I always like to say this. First of all, I'm, I'm the youngest in the family, and I'm still, even though I've eclipsed 
the 30 year mark, I'm still big boy, which uh, of course annoys me to no end. He knows that. He'll listen to this later, but that's okay, Dad. You know that. And uh, we always said, you know, watch yourself, big boy. And I often walked to the edge of inappropriateness, all right? I was sort of the comedian in my family, and I always walked to the edge of inappropriateness and sometimes stepped across, all right? And first of all, I know this might surprise you. As a comedian, you know, you're wondering, boy, how sad is your family that you were the comedian? And you'd be right, we were a dour family. But come on, with a name like Uschläger, you know, I'm German. We're not exactly known for our repertoire of humor, right? I mean, it's like, yes, did you hear the one about... Yeah, it's terrible. That doesn't even work. Right? But this is kind of my role in the family. Does your mom or dad ever say this? Right? Watch yourself. You got to get the finger up. This is the idea here. That Jesus communicates. Have enough self-awareness to know that your next step will likely have consequences. Your next step will likely have consequences. Literally, this word watch yourself means an ongoing watch over yourself. It's ongoing. It's present. Specifically, Jesus is saying to pay attention to two things about yourself. Well, he's saying to pay attention to yourself. He's also saying pay attention to others in God's family. Alright? Pay attention to yourself in relationship with God's family. This little imperative, you see, summarizes then what proceeds and what comes after. Verse 3a. He's saying, keep such vigilant watch over yourself that you avoid temptation. You avoid tempting others. Alright, see that connection with others there? But also keep such an ongoing watch over your others and how you respond to them. Alright? Either way, watch yourself. This command might seem simple, but it is deceptively hard to keep. I was just thinking about this, meditating on this, trying to, as I read this beginning of this week, obey this command, and it was hard. I want to tell you why I think this is hard for us. Hard for me, because I want to take a vacation for paying attention to myself. All right? I want to stop it. I want to shut down paying attention to myself. It is tiring, right? It's tiring watching one's performance. It already feels like we spend our entire lives kind of performing and evaluating our performance or someone else is evaluating our performance, right? Or looking, how we're doing this? How am I doing this? I need to do this better. We're watching our lives constantly. I want a break from it, frankly. This is my way of telling you I need a vacation, congregation. <laughs> Not really. But I need a vacation from me sometimes. You know what I mean? Sometimes I think we feel like this in a relationship with Jesus. Do I always have to watch myself? I mean, really? Avoiding paying attention to ourselves is why a lot of times people escape to things like booze, TV, and vacations. That's, that's, just, that's the name three. All right? Those are just three that come to mind. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying, I want to be very clear about this. I'm not saying vacation, TV, or, or booze are inherently evil. Yes, they can be abused. They become sin if they become your ultimate thing. But I'm not saying they're inherently bad. What I'm doing, trying to do is argue that a number of us look to these sayings as escapes from having to worry about paying attention to our, our performance, our behavior. Right? 
So for instance, you know, booze. <laughs> Speaking very honestly about booze here. They help you have an excuse to forget yourself for a while, right? Yeah, I just... I'll leave that. TV uh, helps me lose myself for a while, while in exchange, I can pay attention to other people's lives, right? It, it's an excuse to, hey, let me watch someone else's life for a while. Kind of just forget my own. Vacations. One, you get away from paying attention to other people, right? Other people in your life. But also, you can kind of just be yourself or be even someone else for a while on vacation. It's kind of nice. It's free. All I'm trying to point out is this, that we turn to these things as escape outlets because a constant, vigilant paying attention to oneself is not only difficult, it is tiring. Right? You know what that's like. I'm trying to help us feel this. Yet, Jesus commands it. Jesus commands it here. Pay attention to yourselves. So, how do we do this? How do we do it? Not just one day, not just once, not twice, but ongoing paying attention of ourselves. I think the key, friends, is this. Here's where we can apply this. Here's the key comes in the discipline of confession. The discipline of confession. I remember finding this crumpled up piece of paper at a Christian summer camp where I, I met Katie. I, I came to faith in Christ. But I remember finding this crumpled up piece of paper. It was like kind of next to the bathroom area. It's kind of weird that I picked it up now that I think about it. Uh, but anyhow, I was curious. And it had the words are the letters A-C-T-S written on them. Kind of spaced apart, written in capital letters, A-C-T-S. And I asked this dude, Chris, what it meant, and he turned out those four words would go on to help me to learn how to pray. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. They broadly cover the four types of prayer we see in the Bible, A-C-T-S. Adoration is praying Talking to God in such a way that you show your love for God. You praise God for who He is. For His greatness, His mercifulness. Right? His forgiveness, His grace, His holiness. C, confession. Confessing one specific sin to God. Confessing it to Him and then receiving forgiveness. T, thanksgiving. Thanking God for His forgiveness. His provision. For answer to prayers. And then finally, S, a fancy word called supplication. Specific requests offered for yourself or offered on behalf of others. God, please help this person. Show them your will for their life. God, help this person. You know, they're sick. They need your healing hand upon them. These sorts of things. The hardest of them all was always confession for me. The hardest. <laughs> it's easy to give, you know, get there and give up. It's like reading the Bible and getting to Leviticus. You're like, great, here I am. Right? Because not only did you have to be honest with yourself and with God, but also I thought all my sin was forgiven. It is important here to talk about this. One issue when it comes to confession is we have to realize that sin is forgiven all at once and 
Sin is confessed so that forgiveness is experienced and trusted. Sin is forgiven all at once and forgiveness is experienced and trusted as you go along in life. First of all, each of our sins were forgiven all at once when we trusted Jesus who died on a cross for our sins. We trusted him to forgive us. Which is shown in Hebrews 9, 25 and 26. So your past, present, future sins forgiven all at once when you trusted Jesus who died on a cross for your sins. But... There's also to be an ongoing daily confession of sin between me and God. 1 John 1 9. Pardon me. 1 John 1 9. There's even to be a confession of sin to one another. The Bible talks about James 5 16, but we'll talk about this between me and God. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven for the cross, but the Bible encourages us to profess sin so that we can further experience the depth of forgiveness. And the depth of his love for us. Further experience it. Does that make sense? So it's true already. But by confessing sins, receiving his forgiveness, you further experience that love. And you further trust it. Just give you a, just a brief analogy. I, you know, I trust that Katie, my wife Katie, loves me. And I would trust that she loves me even if I had to go away for three years to preach the gospel in Iceland. All right? They need people there. There was a volcano. All right? Uh, but when we're honest with each other, weekly and daily, through thick and thin, and especially honest about sin, Katie and I, when this happens, we're able to do this daily, not years apart, be honest with each other, especially about sin, I get to experience a deepened trust that comes through actively being honest. Right? I still trust her no matter what. But there's a, there's a sense in which that trust deepens. There's a sense in which I experience our love more. That's the opportunity we have with confession. Sure, you remember that Jesus loves you in that time 15 years ago when you confessed you're a sinner. But going to him to the cross each day with your junk, right? Being honest with him about it and then receiving and experiencing his forgiveness each day, that will change you. That will grow you. That will deepen your trust in Him each day. That's confession. Why confession though? Why is this a key to helping us last and paying attention to ourselves? This is crucial. I got a 1, 1A, 1C and number 2 to this. I'm a dork. Follow along. All right. Number one, confession provides a way to review your day. All right? Provides a way to review. When did I give into temptation? Right? How might I have led someone else into temptation? How did I respond to someone when they sinned against me? Helps you review your Christian life and how you responded to God in obedience. The habit of reviewing one's day before the Lord helps us grow increasingly more sensitive also to an area of sin in our lives. Right? An area of weakness in our lives. And as you grow more sensitive to it, the Holy Spirit helps you start thinking about it in the moment. Do you know what I mean? So if, if, you, if you go throughout a day, I'll give you an example. This last week, 
Alright, I jotted down, I started jotting down confession each day in a journal, okay? I try to put this into practice. Alright, in the beginning of the week, it was a few days in a row, there were sort of the same themes, areas of sin and weakness in my life. But by the end of the week, one or two of those themes kind of fell off. Kind of sloughed off the pages. Why? Because I'd grown attentive to them. I'd grown sensitive to that area of sin in my life through confession. So the next time an opportunity came up to obey God, I was more ready to obey Him. I remembered, man, here's the opportunity. Does that make sense? Also, confession helps us review the serious temptations and stumbling blocks we can pose for others. So it helps put this passage in application. How have I potentially caused someone to sin? How have I been a temptation to other people? Confession also helps us review, sorry, helps us more quickly and freely forgive other people. Helps us more quickly and freely forgive other people. Right? So basically obeying verses 3 and 4. The sins of our brothers and sisters start to seem pale in comparison to our own laundry list of sin against God. Right? If you're real and you're honest with God about this, man, it can help you grow so much more tender and forgiving towards people. Uh, famous theologian and martyr for the Christian faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it this way. He said, anybody who is once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sin of his brother. Does that make sense? You know, you, you, if you are honest with your, about your sin with the Lord, you experience his forgiveness. Man, that sin seems pretty awful compared to what that person did to me. Helps you be more ready to forgive. Confession does another important thing, though. And here's what's really cool. Here's what I love about confession. It's like an extra perk, but it's an awesome perk. Confession provides the rest we need through the finished work of Christ. The whole reason why we can feel something, feel like we can do something as self-inflicting and masochistic, right, is confession, right? Going to God every day with my sin. People say, that sounds awful. The reason we can do it is because we trust what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. That he had done everything necessary to forgive sins. It is finished. That rest, resting in that, happens through confession. What we were previously trying to rest from Paying attention to ourselves, here's the radical thing. We were previously trying to rest from, get away from, constantly paying attention to ourselves. We can actually find rest in through confession. Does that make sense? Through confessing your sins to Jesus and resting in His forgiveness. Resting in the knowledge that Jesus is already taking care of everything. You're not constantly thinking, well, what am I going to do next? How am I doing? Did I just hurt that person? Did I just do something bad? You can rest in confessing. Confessing of sins. 
and that helps you. You don't have to keep thinking about your laundry list of how you're going to do better and obey God better and do better next time. Remember, you're more responsive. You're more tender to forgive people. You're more sensitive to the Spirit saying, hey, remember that last time? Here's your opportunity. You can rest. You guys see that? There's a restfulness that comes in confession that can't be found in something else. You can still have your glass of wine. You can still take your vacation to Tahiti. You can still watch the final episode on TV of Law and Order. All right? But those don't give you ultimate rest. Ultimate rest can be found through what Jesus did on the cross. And that can be re-remembered. It can be re-experienced through confession. This passage gives one final imperative. This imperative actually comes from the disciples to Jesus. Right? Upon hearing how hard all of this is, you know, to be constantly watching oneself, they give a demand in response to His command. The demand is this. Increase our faith. They say in verse 5. This is hard. Jesus, please, increase our faith. Jesus' response is this. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could do pretty incredible things. That's the summary of that last part there. This, his response ought to be tremendously encouraging to us. Mustard seed, one of the smallest of all seeds, very small. It should be great encouragement to us because what Jesus is saying is regular, regular, but supernaturally genuine faith will do in life. Regular, but supernaturally genuine faith will do in life. It should be of tremendous encouragement to us. How many of us, how many of you guys out there, are moms just grasping for the strength to get through each day, right? How many of us are stuck at a tedious job with a boss that we're not sure how long we can work for much longer, right? Perhaps you're not finding joy in a relationship that you once had. Once used to be a spark, but now you, you mask your pain as you try to keep going. Alright? A number of us, that's where we are in life, you know? That's where we're at. How do we keep going? You look around at others with more faith. You say, man, they can actually pay attention to their lives. They can look back. They can confess sin. Be forgiven. Because they spent the time with God. They've been at the Bible study. They've, they've done this. They've done this. They can do those things. Not me. My faith isn't enough. My faith isn't really enough. What Jesus is saying is your regular but supernaturally genuine faith is enough, friends. Only one thing is required for salvation. Only one thing is required to have access to God. Only one thing is required for God to hear your prayers. What is it? Faith. Faith, trust, belief. It's all the same Greek word in the New Testament. The different translations. Faith, trust, belief. If it's genuine, friends, you have access to all of this. I heard a story uh, from a youth worker once. He talked about how in college... I like this story. He talked about how in his uh, college speech class, uh, he had to give a presentation. And a large portion of his grade was creativity. All right? 
It's the backdrop. His presentation was entitled The Law of the Pendulum. The Law of the Pendulum. If you don't know, the Law of the Pendulum states this that a pendulum, you know, a pendulum can never return to a point higher than that from which it started. Alright? So the pendulum starts here, swings down, can't return back to here. Can be a little lower each time. Why? Because of friction and gravity. Right? Friction of air, gravity forces it downwards. So he had the small pendulum and he demonstrated it to the class. Then he asked them, do you guys believe in the law of the pendulum? And they all said, say it with me, yes. Yeah, we believe. Thinking the presentation was over, the, the professor of the class walks up, but the student stops him. The presentation really had just begun. Hanging from the steel beams in the middle of the classroom was a large but crude, large, sorry, large and crude but functional pendulum. 250 pounds of metal weights tied to four strands of 500 pound test parachute cord. All right, in the middle. Oh, when he told the story, first of all, I thought, how did they not notice? But I never heard. I never heard that explanation. So he invites the professor to come to come up and climb up on this table. Classroom and sit upon this kind of kind of large. It was kind of a tall table and a, sort of one of those bar stool esque, you know, uh, chairs. And he sits on the chair with the back of his head against the cement wall. Then he brings 250 pounds of metal up to the professor's nose, holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face. He again explained the law of the pendulum. You know that he applauded moments before. If the law of the pendulum is true. When I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room, but return short of the release point. Sir, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? At this point, the professor, he was sweating. Right? And his face was just like, and he just kind of creaked out, yeah, in <laughs> one of those. He released the pendulum. He made a swishing sound across the room, he said. And as it swished across the room, <laughs> at the far end of the swing, it paused for just a minute, and he said, the speaker said, that the professor said he never saw a man move so fast in his life. He jumped right down from that chair and onto the table and just, you know, just got down in the army crawl position. He stepped around the, the, the pendulum. And finally, the student asked the class, does he still believe in the law of the pendulum? And the class unanimously shouted, no. There are a lot of people like this professor who can talk a good faith, good belief, and they even seem to increase it. They grow. We admire them. We look at them. But they never use their faith, never put it into practice. Jesus is saying, your regular but supernatural belief is enough. Use it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, boy, this is one of the, part of this scripture is something we can, we can relate to. I know I can. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Lord, you use such regular faith, such little faith, because you are so big. 
Such little faith works because you are so big. Jesus, you want us to put into practice. To do something greater than taking a mulberry bush and planting it in the middle of an ocean. Something even greater than that. Living a life of faith. Living a life of faith. Paying attention to ourselves and how we interact with others. And growing in that through the discipline of confession. If I saw a life like that, that would be a greater miracle than a giant bush planted into the ocean. Because that is awesome. Lord, and you want us to put that kind of faith into practice. In fact, we're going to do that this morning, briefly here. You can open your eyes for a minute. Follow, follow along with me. We're going to do a practice of uh, the discipline of confession and put it, in, put it into use. Alright, so just follow along with me. Lord, I confess First of all, you are great. You are holy. You are worthy of perfection. And I have fallen short in my life. Lord, I want to be specific with you and confess how I've fallen short. So let's all take a minute to just silently in your heart confess how you've fallen short specifically. Oh Lord, Lord Jesus, these are ways in which we have specifically sinned against you. And now God, we know that when you said it is finished on the cross, that you finished the work needed to redeem us, to completely forgive us and cover our sin. And so we trust in that now. We receive your forgiveness, Lord. We receive it. And we ask that you would grow our trust in it. We ask now that you would grow us to be more sensitive to opportunities to obey now. Grow us to pay more attention to ourselves and to others in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.